As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. At the Fed and working at the Fed with the Board of Governors for years was Michael Gape and he's Bank of America, chief U.S. economist, truly holistic on our monetary and fiscal linkages. Michael, thank you for briefing us uh, this morning. I want to go, Michael, within the swirl of the data right now to what matters for you. We go to jobs and we go on. We stagger into November. What matters for Michael Gapin? Honestly, only one number, and that's the payroll number. I think that there's a lot of distortion in the data, as you know, and we've talked about it many times, mm-hmm. and, and it's really hard to know, you know, which one do we take the right signal from? And, and so what matters to me in terms of the underlying momentum in the economy, how far the Fed may go, and the near-term course of the economy, it's, it's almost exclusively just payrolls. Let's drill into that to payrolls versus the two studies that we'll see on Friday. If I take a three-month moving average of non-farm payrolls, the number, folks, that comes out at 830 that everybody reads first, what is the appropriate three-month moving average for the Fed to say, all clear, let's change? To slow, to, to move to a slower pace of hikes, you probably need that number to drop below 200,000. To get a soft landing, you, that number probably needs to be about 50 to maybe 70. Wow. So, so I, I think that it's two, 275, 300,000 a month, those are still robust numbers. That tells the Fed to keep going. So pivot to a slower pace, probably below 200. But to get the unemployment rate to rise gently over a two-year period like they're forecasting, certainly sub 100. And that's something that is going to be hard to see. With that's at least based on a lot of the projections that we've been seeing. Lizanne Saunders uh, actually put out some interesting charts of Charles Schwab talking about how the data is showing peripheral weakness. You're seeing more part-time jobs uh, appear in some of the anecdotal data. Is the headline non-farm payrolls number really the one that we should be watching for real-time changes in just how quickly this labor market is softening? 
No, certainly there are, there are other data points that are complementary to the overall picture, and I would never say we shouldn't look at those. So the JOLTS data that we received with fewer job openings, the quits rate, um, the ratio of openings to the unemployed, I think all those are important to provide context. And yes, they do show that on the margin, labor demand is softening and the labor market is cooling, and that's of course where the Fed wants to, to go. But I just think ultimately, the Fed's not going to conclude that policy, the policy setting is right, the outlook for inflation is, is correct, if we're still adding two to 300,000 jobs a month. So at the end, yes, it comes down to where payroll growth is, where employment growth is over time, but there are certainly other data points that we should be looking at to see whether or not, are they right that we can reduce labor demand without pushing the unemployment rate up significantly? Those other data points that, that you mentioned and including the jolts can help give context around that story. Mike, there are a lot of people pushing back and saying that inflation is actually decelerating pretty dramatically. They point to a number of different metrics and they say that looking at the labor market data as it is, is not accurate. It is a misleading way to create future policy based on a lagging indicator. John's talked a lot about this. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. In part, yes. I think you do have to be forward-looking in your, in your policy setting. So only looking at the data under your feet at that moment in time may mean that you overcorrect in one direction or the other. We, and there are going to be other factors that help bring inflation down, whether it's global commodity prices or some reversal in goods prices, so wholesale used car prices being down seven of the last eight months, according to Mannheim, we should start getting some relief from, from global supply chains that are going to help the Fed. So it's not just the labor market, uh, and, and certainly setting policy on where the labor market is today would increase the likelihood that you make a mistake. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's some, in some respects, you have what you have, and, and that's the data point that over time is going to tell right. them where is services inflation going to end up. Michael, and this is your wheelhouse from, from the days I've known you at the Fed, and that is the merchandise trade statistic of WTO today was absolutely stunning. It's a 1% 2023 growth statistic for merchandise trade. Clearly, globally, that does not get it done. What does that statistic mean for Americans? Uh, as you discussed in your prior segment, not as much because we're still we're a large, relatively closed economy. Strong appreciations in the dollar like we have will slow the economy down through the trade balance. But that's a relatively narrow channel for us. It's certainly not as large as it is for other developed economies like Europe, the UK, Australia, uh, and, and so forth. And, and what I would say is what it, what it implies is a very weak global growth backdrop, including outside the US, which we all know, and that actually tends to help the U.S. because it brings lower energy prices on, on net and gasoline prices fall. So the U.S. gets a windfall on the consumer side, even though a strong dollar and weak global growth is a drag through trade. So it's a more complicated picture when it comes to the U.S. So, Mike, let's net this out. You've got a recession call on America, on the American economy. Can you just tell me on balance? Are you moving that forward? Are you pushing that out? How are things developing? We, uh, we pushed it out to begin in Q1. We, I originally had things slowing down in the fourth quarter of the year as data earlier this year were kind of pointing to that, but then things picked up here in the summer and the fall. I moved it out to begin in the first half of, 
of next year. At, at the moment, I haven't changed that. I think trends in recent weeks, the Fed shift to being serious and lifting its policy rate and the tightening in financial conditions that that's developed, that's, that's left me comfortable with something around Q1 or in the first half of next year. But that's when we have it starting. Just to round it out, what about duration and depth, Mike, beyond the start point? I, you know, we, I spread it out over three quarters in part to, to signal a little uncertainty about start depth and, and duration. And we have the unemployment rate rising, you know, a little above 5%, so a little more than, than the Fed would have it. Um, but I think kind of in the first three quarters of next year is when we're likely to see our peak softness. And the cut start when, Mike? December <laughs> of 23. This is what's interesting about it, though, Mike. The, the reason I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting sitting here saying you've got a crystal ball. That's not why I've asked you those questions. It's interesting to me that you've got three quarters of recession and the cuts don't start until the very end of yeah. the year, Mike. Is that original? Because Have you ever seen that before? Uh, I, so the, the idea behind that is the terminal rate's about the labor market, but cuts are about inflation. And so when do they shift to a more balanced reaction function? They, I think, you know... Every time inflation comes in higher, it gives them a worse starting point. So it just takes a while for, for that to show through. But yes, but it, it's consistent with the idea that we're going to have to accept some pain in the domestic economy to bring inflation down. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's an odd situation, but it's a Fed right now that's saying we need the economy to slow to help us on the inflation side. So it's a different setting for them. Fascinating. Mike, just wonderful. It's been brilliant reading your stuff since you got to B of A. It's going to have you with us this morning. Thank you. Mike Gapin there of Bank <clears> of America. Right now we do better. I have no idea why he's not in the OPEC Plus meeting at the table. Christian Malik joins us now from J.P. Morgan, who's really been definitive on the how we get to a permanent $100 a barrel uh, plus. We've seen the demand questions at Morrison Citigroup. Gaming out nicely, uh, Christian, $70, $80 a barrel. And suddenly we are higher. What is the single distinction that drives us to $120 a barrel? No spare capacity, in short, uh, Tom. I mean, we're seeing a repricing of oil to the marginal barrel, and it's away from OPEC. Um, I know it sounds controversial to say that on a day like OPEC meeting. It's away from OPEC, and it's going back into control of the majors who represent somewhere between 35 to 40% of the world's oil. And they're not spending, they're not investing at these levels, uh, which then begs the question, what price will they spend? Will they grow their production um, and reinvest into those long-term projects? And I think we're going to need a significantly higher price, which in some ways is potentially what OPEC is trying to do today. They're trying to defend right. not the front end, but the back end. The trying of OPEC. I have the memory of 1986, oil plunging 24% is my quick mathematics. How close is the cartel to a 1986? I think in terms of how close they are, that will all depend on how demand uh, responds to the, the current price. And uh, and we know that they're arguably looking for a higher price, potentially closer to where their fiscal break-evens are. Ultimately, it's not just the break-even of the countries. It's also what they want in terms of defending social reform. And we know there's a lot of issues at the moment with high energy prices. So that price uh, level versus what the U.S. wants uh, suggests there's arguably a price war. Uh, that's emerging between these two continents. But in the end, um, if demand can respond at 120 to 130, uh, which is our house view, then I don't necessarily see um, uh, demand collapsing. And then it's all about supply. It's a supply-driven crisis, which is ultimately 
where our super cycle thesis projects for the next five to seven years. Where are we in terms of the U.S. as a swing producer at this point, given the lack of investment in the shale patch and just generally throughout the energy sector? Shale, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like you've sort of, it's been dismantled. Parts have rusted. You put it back together again. It's just not as effective in terms of productivity, in terms of production volumes. And ultimately, um, they've got used to returning cash and getting more popular with Wall Street. So you have to sort of think about what price do they need to cover their, all their capex, all their cash return, as well as a price that can necessarily see much bigger volumes of growth with all the money in the world. And that's much higher. That's closer to $80 to $90. So we're not seeing as much volume growth this year, closer to 700, 800,000 barrels, similar to next year. And I think that's the key. So right now, if you're not seeing production increase and you're actually seeing production cuts at OPEC Plus, Mm -hmm. where does the marginal stopgap come in, right? We talk about the Strategic Petroleum Mm -hmm. Reserve and how much the U.S. has already drawn down on some of those reserves, the speculation that they could tap them yet again, drain them Mm -hmm. further in response to some sort of 2 million barrel production cut today. Is that bullet gone? Is it used? Absolutely. I think it's used. And, and you know, I love to talk about jewels and we, we are, the world is short energy, right? Across all fuels. And, and that's what we've been uh, talking through this year uh, and, and with you. And I think the key here is if the marginal jewel, if you like, is, is, is oil, then it's a bit like saying to your customers, look, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I've got oil, you know, still got some energy. The bad news, you can have to pay a lot more for it. As inventory come down and that silver bullet from the US right. is done, it ultimately becomes who's up for taking those barrels at the higher price. Christian, in your definitive report of, I'm going to say, seven, eight months ago, you give a fair share to ESG, to synthetics, to the other things we're going to do for energy besides oil. Give us your sense of the ESG event, given a war in Ukraine. Is it forever altered? Is it shifted? I think what we're going to see is ultimately an upgrade of bad co to good co in this sector. And ultimately what I mean by that is this sector, we, we did some work last week kind of doing a bottom-up version of that Jules report for companies. And the, the industry, the European US majors, represent roughly 20% of the world's energy in Jules, 20% uh, across all fuels, uh, not just oil, gas, hydrogen, et cetera. And so the key here is I think what this ESG event ultimately will evolve to is more of a, a hybrid of mm-hmm. recognized transition is a function of this sector delivering energy on a lower carbon footprint, but ultimately delivering energy so that we don't compromise security. Yeah. And I think that will change the optics uh, and redefine the sector's role in energy transition as opposed to being simply you know, in the penalty box. Christian Malik with truly a definitive report, controversial report earlier this year, advancing a theme to higher oil prices. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala is Director General of the World Trade Organization. She brings absolutely bulletproof Harvard and MIT economics to the massive task of a WTO finding a place within international institutions. They found it about six months ago with the single best call on global slowdown of any of the institutions. All you need to know is Dr. Okonjo-Iwala and WTO was way out front. Director General, thank you for joining Bloomberg this morning. I'll get to the headline. You say merchandise trade is going to slow down off the proverbial cliff to 1% in 2023. What does that mean for the developed world? What does it mean for your Nigeria and emerging markets? Well, thank you very much for, for having us. Yes, we've just released our forecast, and it's looking uh, quite grim, uh, a little more grim than we had thought. Uh, a real slowdown, and uh, it's happening for several reasons. Of course, uh, the, the the high energy prices in, in Europe arising from the war in Ukraine are a big factor in this, and the squeeze on household spending, the monetary policy tightening in various uh, developed countries that are happening, and emerging markets uh, also uh, is playing into this. And, and um, so a whole variety of right. uh, factors. What does this mean? It means that um, we're looking at a situation in which a global slowdown is going to squeeze households even more, squeeze businesses, and uh, we may be edging into a recession, well, if not globally. Director General, because of time, I must interrupt and be rude, but I'm going to do it because this question is so important. Is Jay Powell, is central banker to the world, impinging on global slowdown? Are the central banks moving in the wrong direction? Was your advice off the chalkboards at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? It's very difficult. Jay Powell is in a tough position, whether to continue tightening, whether you'll overshoot if you do that because of looking at lagging indicators. Um, it's very difficult to give advice to central bankers now. Um, but there's no doubt that something has to be done about inflation. Uh, we just have to watch and see so as not to uh, edge into an overshoot. But far be it from me to give Jay Powell uh, uh, advice on, on how to run monetary policy. Ngozi, how much does China factor into your uh, outlooks? How much does the uh, potential for them to open up from a zero COVID policy or emerge from some of the downturn that they've experienced factor in or not to this forecast? It factors in considerably into the forecast. I've mentioned the war in Ukraine, I've mentioned the monetary tightening, but China is another big factor. Of course, uh, the COVID slowdown and, and what it means, um, uh, whether it's going to continue and we're going to have other lockdowns, it's a big factor. If China's economy continues to slow the way we are seeing, that will have a big impact on what happens to the world economy, as you know, and I really care for uh, developing countries and emerging markets. 
Ngozi, just to sort of broaden out, we've been talking about how we're witnessing a sea change where suddenly governments cannot finance themselves with deficits the way that they have before, particularly in developed markets, and central bankers cannot fuel growth by just lowering rates. How do you take that into consideration for not only this year's projection, but projection for growth over the next decade? Well, it obviously is very, very difficult. What we are saying, seeing in our projections is tremendous uncertainty. That I can, I can tell you is what is really making it difficult to predict. We've never seen this amount of certainty when we do our forecasts before. But what we do see is that this uncertainty is tending to risks on the downside. Uh, so that is really impacting. And um, we, we need to look at what, what can we do to turn things around? How can we slow down inflationary pressures whilst looking for tools that can help us restore growth? So um, it's very difficult to predict. There's too much uncertainty in the air. Director General, thank you for being with us today. And Gozi Okonjo Iwela there of the WTO. I have to say the WTO came out yeah. pretty much in front of most of those organizations. <clears throat> well, there it is, and it's a backdrop there, 1% again for 2023 in merchandise trade. Tony Crescenzi has these numbers tattooed to his brain. He's with PIMCO and is truly expert on the short-term space in the bond market. What does fixed Thank income you. do, Tony, given a global recession and certainly from WTO a trade recession? Well, the bond market is starting to think about that possibility, and uh, these yields, therefore, make it a propitious time for investors, an attractive period. The bond market's thinking the economies will weaken. They're not sure, so there's some risk premium, you could say, in prices of uh, various assets, equities in particular. So I think it's just the uncertainty factor that's keeping uh, markets on edge uh, because we're not sure about how uh, inflation will evolve in particular. But as long as there's vigilance by central banks, and there will be, it seems, uh, voc arrest style in in the United States, for example, uh, it's highly likely that the inflation rate will decline. There will be disinflation. The bond market will look increasingly attractive to investors, especially if the WTO-type scenario where global trade volumes shrink as much as they expect. I mean, it's right. relative to... Well, let's cut rate. to the chase. Is PIMCO extending duration? Are you loading the boat on high yield this morning, Tony? Uh, PIMCO's been underweight duration for some time. We've been reducing... Yes, you've been leading on that. We've been, we'd rather keep it close to neutral. Remember, when you're thinking about duration, interest rate sensitivity, you're, you're talking about a directional strategy. If you open up the Frank Fabosi 1,500-page book on bond investing, you see there's a lot more to do than simply bet on the direction of interest rates. And that's what PIMCO is trying to do right now. Just try to stay up in quality and try to not make directional bets, to look for uh, assets that we think would bend but not break in a time of recession and would withstand lots of different types of economic outcomes. But all that said, uh, duration, underweight, slight underweight, given the recent drop in yield, slight underweight might make sense. But remember, uh, the, uh, Tom, the Bloomberg aggregate has a duration of 6.6 .6 years, meaning if yields move a percentage point, uh, the, that the investor would lose six Wait. and a half points. Tony, so a slight underweight wouldn't be uh, much. You said something yeah. interesting, a slight underweight. Does that imply, hi, Tony, does that imply from your perspective that we have not yet seen peak yields? 
It's difficult to say. There's a wide range of scenarios, but uh, yields today are closer to their long-term averages, and that makes it uh, a very attractive time to be investing, for one. Secondly, uh, the, the yields and the Bloomberg aggregate today, which is a compilation, by the way, for those who don't know, of treasuries, mortgages, corporates, and a bunch of other securities, it yields today, the yield is 4.6%. Now, how does that compare historically? Very good. It's closer to long-term averages. That's one reason why bonds look quite attractive today. Secondly, where do you think the inflation rate's headed? Bond market seems to think into the low twos eventually, so that yield, high fours, looks attractive on that basis. And finally, as Tom alluded, uh, if uh, economies weaken, there's a chance for capital gains in fixed income now. And so one doesn't want to miss out on that. And so you have to question, are you really interested in timing the diversification benefits of bonds, which, uh, of course, this year haven't been quite apparent, but we think will assert themselves over time. How much are you seeing, Tony, a lot of uh, just mom and pop investors pile into short term treasuries for the first time in a long time? How much are you seeing those cash investments really balloon in a way that feels sticky to you that will transform the rest of the markets? Because that is money not going to equities, not going to high yield bonds. I recently took a trip to Asia, uh, Korea, Singapore, Thailand, lots of investors there. Today, I'll travel to San Francisco from New York. been traveling a lot, seeing lots of clients, talking to them on Zoom, etc. It seems like the wagons are circling, but of course, as you could see by uh, the global fund flows, uh, investors are still leery. All that said, uh, investors seem to be willing to move into the center of what we would call the concentric circle for investing. The concentric circle would, be, uh, would have uh, the, the riskless securities, treasuries, at the center and the most risky securities at the perimeter. So investors are seeming to want to move toward the center of that concentric circle and will slowly work their way out when they gain confidence. It'll take lots of things, lots of scenarios, of course, you can envision that, um, that cause that to occur, but they're not in place yet. Tanya, I've got some triple C unsecured debt for sale. Um, what kind of interest would you offer on a triple C social media company? Yeah, well, Send it on Twitter. You know, it's <laughs> struggling for direction. 50%. What do you reckon it's the not key in areas? What would that be, Tony? So on a concentric circle, think of a, uh, of a solar system, and a concentric circle looks like that. That's like going way out to, to the outer perimeter of the system. So, And that's a risky gambit right now, given the uncertainties about economic growth and cash flows. Because at the, at the end of the day, what a bond investor cares about is cash flow, getting is a her, it's money back. It's, uh, and of course, in a dour economic scenario, it's, it becomes um, uncertain. Very diplomatic, Tony. Thank you, sir. He was very diplomatic. Tony Crescenti there. Uh, this is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight. From the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.